This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. This week, we were lucky to be joined by Tegan Taylor from the CoronaCast podcast. She answers coronavirus questions every day and she took on some of yours. Like, what's the point of getting the vaccine if you can still get the coronavirus? How did scientists and researchers create these different vaccines so quickly? And you have a friend that doesn't want to get vaccinated, but you have. What are the implications of still hanging out with them? Plus, we get into the regular science stuff. Electric shocks, DNA between identical twins and tree rings. It's a whole mix. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Tegan Taylor, welcome back to Triple J. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, can you give us a bit of a reintroduction to who you are and what you do as part of CoronaCast? Yeah, of course. So we do a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. It's called CoronaCast. It's me. I'm just a health reporter. I'm not a doctor, but I do it with Dr Norman Swan. And in March last year when we started it, I really thought it was going to last a couple of months. Now here we are 18 months on. <sighs> everyone's, everyone's so much more health literate than they were 18 months ago. I think that's a silver lining here. And people do still have questions. Questions clearly. What do you think at this stage? Gosh, what month are we in? August. <laughs> you know, August 2021. What are some of the most popular questions you're getting at the moment, or maybe the most repeated questions? It's funny, some of the questions are the same as they've been the whole way along. What people really want to know is like how or when it's mm. going to end. And the the best questions are probably the ones <laughs> where the answer is. I don't know. Um, Another really common question that we're getting at the moment is when will I get the Pfizer vaccine? When will I get access to the Pfizer vaccine? Mm. So that's that's really interesting. There's obviously uh, a lot of stuff that goes into that. A month ago, it was kind of an academic question. Now it's a really uh, pressing issue for a lot of people living in areas where we're living with outbreaks. Mm -hmm. I do want to preface this as well by saying that Dr. Carl and Tegan are not your GP. They can't give you that kind of health advice, but they can talk through the science behind it all. So are you ready to get started, Tegan, Dr. Carl? Give it to me. Ready to rock. Let's do it. Okay, so we got Josh here on the Gold Coast. Josh, you are kicking us off. What's your question? Yeah, just want to know, like, people are getting uh, the vaccine, but they're still getting COVID and people are still dying from it. So, you know, what's the point of getting the vaccine then? Hey, Josh, um, I'm not actually sure that's true, at least in Australia. I know that a a week or so ago, of all the people that were in ICU, so intensive care units, you know, the sickest people in Australia, they were all unvaccinated, uh, except for one person who had one dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, so not fully vaccinated. Uh, in, In contrast to that, we're not seeing anywhere near as number of the number of older people like in aged care getting as sick and dying with this outbreak as we did a few months ago. And part of the reason for that is because we made such a push to vaccinate elderly people because we knew that they were the highest risk of getting very sick and dying. So nothing's 100% effective, but these guys, these vaccines come pretty close to being 100% effective when it comes to protecting you from dying of COVID. Dr. Carl? Uh, Dr. Josh, think about seatbelts and contraceptives. They are not 100% effective, but they give you a massive degree of protection against dying in a car accident or getting pregnant. Now, think about this. This is a true statement. In the United Kingdom last year, in road vehicle incidents, two-thirds of everybody who died was wearing a seatbelt. And just think about that. Two-thirds of everybody who died in a road accident last year in the United Kingdom was wearing a seatbelt. Does that mean 
that we should not wear seatbelts. Oh, my God. If we didn't wear seatbelts, we'd have so many more dead people. Just think about that one and follow it through. And I guess a follow-up question really for Josh, what is that What what is that notion of getting a vaccine but still getting the thing you're protecting yourself against? Um, there's what's called breakthrough. A vaccine is not a magic bubble that stops the virus getting into your body but lets through air and handshakes and kisses. No, the virus gets into your body and then there's roughly five stages that can happen and the vaccines work with increasing protection at each of those five stages. The stages are getting infected with no symptoms or getting infected with mild symptoms or getting infected and having to go to hospital or getting infected and having to end up in ICU or getting infected and dying. And the protection increases as you go through. It's not absolute, but against dying, I think, Tegan, is it up around the high 90s percent? Oh, it's 99 point something. It's very, very high. Yeah, so I sort of see all of the different things that we're doing, but vaccines especially, what we're doing is we're turning the volume right down. We might not be able to switch something off entirely, but if we turn all the knobs right down, the risk of catching it, the risk of getting severely ill, the risk of dying right down, then over the course of all of Australia, the, the numbers of deaths are going to be minuscule. Liz from Gympie with a great text saying, important to point out the vaccination is not that a vaccination is not the same as an immunization it won't make us immune to covid but will reduce its severity i don't know i think that's it's an interesting point though the words are used interchangeably we talk about immunization the thing is with these vaccines they're actually very good mm. at immunizing you against covid-19 but your body's still got to do the work when it encounters the virus so it knows how to make those antibodies but it needs to have enough of them to actually fight the infection that you're dealing with and following on from that, with measles, it doesn't change. If it changed, it couldn't infect you. So you get the single shot. You know, this is on average. You get the shot once and you're pretty well set for life. But what we've got here is a virus that mutates like crazy while still being both infective and potentially fatal. So that's why we need top-up and different vaccines with time rather than just once and you're done for life. Thanks, Josh. No worries. We've got Jade here from Brizzy. Jade, we've been getting familiar with these for the last 18 months. What's your question? Yeah, sure, Av. Hey, guys, how you going? Um, just got a quick question about reusable masks, um, like cotton and silk and all that. Are they as effective as surgical masks? And are you at risk to, like, bacteria and that build up on the mask because you are reusing them? Um, the early figures from the um, life of the virus on a surface, range between about three days and a few hours, depending on whether you were with fabric or cardboard or stainless steel or copper. So on pretty well any surface, after three days, the virus will be dead unless you put it in a freezer, in which case it seems to last for a really long time. Bummer. Okay. Now, secondly, the masks are once again a level of protection and... Uh, my wife recently went through the whole N95 mask. Mate, it takes about an hour to learn how to wear it properly and you've got to make sure that it's not blowing out here and this is happening and that. It, it is not a simple thing. So the masks are a level of protection. Now, if you wear the mask once and then just leave it out in the sunlight or put it through the washing machine and then just leave it for a week, pretty well 
all the virus will be dead and the bacteria, mate, there's bacteria everywhere. If it turns out that you have got a really nasty bacterial infection, um, then, and then you lend your mask to somebody else, you could transmit it to them. But in general, go for the mask. Mm-hmm. I was out the front of Woolies with my housemate and <laughs> I didn't have a mask. And this was, this was months ago, like last time. And she said, oh, did you want to wear my mask? I went, nah, <laughs> I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather you just go in for me, actually. <laughs> we got Michelle here from Elmore. Michelle, what's your question? Uh, good morning. I'm just inquiring or questioning. Can you tell me how come we've managed to get three vaccines for coronavirus, which has not been around that long. And how come we can't get vaccines for other illnesses so quickly? It's such a good question because really what it comes down to is money. The the research funding, the global research effort that's gone into finding a vaccine, finding solutions for coronavirus, this coronavirus, is absolutely unprecedented. So usually the way clinical trials work is that someone goes, I think I've got a bit of an idea and they've got to go cap in hand to different funding bodies and get that funding and then they do something and then they publish those results and then they go back and ask for more funding and then they publish those results and those phase one, two, three clinical trials take years and years and that's if it works whereas this time there was this understanding that we needed a global effort there was uh, a global threat and people just chucked money at it the other thing that happened a couple of years ago was that um, global health bodies realized that something like this was possible and so they started funding things that might be able to be adapted to pathogens that we didn't know about yet. One of those things that was developed was the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the other one was the UQ vaccine, which isn't in um, production at the moment anymore. They're back in clinical trials again. But both of those were sort of like a part of the way ready to go and then they kind of just plugged the coronavirus into it and then they could uh, they took it from there. So they've sort of concertinaed a lot of that back end to make, to make the science more quick. And there was a... And there was an unfortunate third, th- another factor, which is that with most of the illnesses that they're developing a vaccine for, you've got to wait until you get enough people infected to get enough of a sample size. And unfortunately, this thing just raged. It was a pandemic. We haven't had one for 102 years. It was a pandemic, not an epidemic. There were huge numbers of people infected, which was terrible. But, unfo- but it kind of makes the statistics really easy to see the benefit of a vaccine coming through. And by the way, with regard to short and long-term effects, I, th- I remember you saying, uh, Tegan, that the short-term effects normally come out um, in the first six weeks. And I think the figures for America is that since the 1960s, they developed 57 new vaccines and within six weeks, one of them was thrown out. And we've been having these vaccines for more than six weeks. So the short-term effects are well and truly out of the way. We've got Joe here from Lismore. Joe, you're getting some spontaneous bruising. What's going on, Joe? Yeah, hi. Um, I have no idea what's going on. So <laughs> if I use a vacuum cleaner and I handle the metal part of the vacuum cleaner or like a kettlebell at the gym and I pick it up, I end up with a spontaneous bruise on the inside of my finger. And it can be a different finger <clears throat> and it doesn't happen all the time. Um we need more experimentation. So what I would ask if you could possibly do this would be to wear some of those thin medical gloves so that you're still putting the same load on the flesh but there's no direct metal to skin contact. And then 
if you're still getting bruising, then there might be something further that a GP needs to look at. But let's exclude the possible metal-skin interaction. I, and, and take it from there. Would you be okay with doing that experiment for us? Of course I would, sure. Yeah, Joe, ah. take, if you can, take a picture of it as well so we can see it. Yes, remember the okay. difference between science and screwing around is writing it down. <laughs> if you could write down a few words, that'll be even better as well. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. We've got Kat here on the Gold Coast. Kat, you've got a question about pregnant women when it comes to the vaccine. What do you want to know? Um, hi, guys. I'm wanting to know what your thoughts are. Recently gone through IVF treatment, um, been having a look around for some information. So originally pregnant women weren't included in the first clinical trial to the vaccine. However, the health.gov.au website quotes real world evidence shows it's safe. How reliable is that information? It's not just safe, it's recommended. So the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, which is a mouthful, but they're all the people that look closely at pregnancy and babies, they recommend ATAGI, which is the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. So they're the boffins that look at all the stuff and go, okay, this is is who should get what. Um, Once a vaccine has been approved, they recommend that pregnant women are routinely offered the Pfizer vaccine at any stage of pregnancy. The risk of you having severe outcomes from COVID is really high if you're pregnant. It's also um, risky for your unborn baby and there's no significant safety concerns. But even on top of that, the good news is there's evidence that the antibodies that you make go into the cord blood and the breast milk, which actually would also offer protection to your baby. So it's not just protecting you, it's also protecting your pregnancy and your bub. Awesome. Um, I just had one more quick one. Um, can, and can this virus pass through the placenta? That's something I don't know. Dr. Carl, do you know about that? Um, no, but I would guess that it's not impossible. The virus has um, a size, it's an RNA virus, and I think it's got 40,000 base pairs, which means it's a fairly big molecule. Okay, if a woman will, uh, say for example, who loves curries, eats a lot of curries while she's pregnant, the baby then grows up preferring curries and they've managed to isolate out the cultural thing of their eating curries at home. So it seems that some of the small molecules can get across. We do know, for example, that women uh, are more likely to have uh, chemicals from the baby going into them across to the placenta, which is why there is a slight tendency for women to have more autoimmune disease than men. And, for example, if you look at um, an autoimmune disease of the thyroid gland, which is more common in women, when they go looking, they'll find in there some chromosomes that are not XX. They're XY from one of their male babies. So it's a, the, the placenta is a pretty darn good barrier, but some things can get across. And I'm guessing we'll find out later that the virus might be able to. There, there, there could be some sort of blockage via the immune system that stops us. Don't know at this stage. Thanks, Kat. Okay. Thank you. We've got Ainsley here from Dandenong. Ainsley, you want to talk about breath control? Yes. Hi, doctors. Um, I was actually just wondering, so we can control our lungs, obviously, by holding our breath or we can increase our breathing or slow it down. But I was wondering why we can't control other things in our body like our heart beating. I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm guessing that um, there is an advantage in being able to control your breath. And so, for example, you might, if you know, a few thousand years ago, be running through the smoke from a bushfire and you don't want to breathe it. So you can hold your breath and get through the thick smoke 
and hold your breath for 30 seconds and get to the other side. And also there's the advantage that if you go diving for fish, so many civilizations built up at the boundary between the land and the ocean because the ocean gave good travel as well as access to food. And if you keep on breathing when you dive underwater, you've got to start sucking in water. So that's my very weak evolutionary biology answer. I don't have a good answer. If there's an evolutionary biologist, please ring in. What's the magic number, Dr. Lucy? one three hundred o triple five three six. We've got Nathan here from Foster. Nathan, what is your question? Um, so this is a brief, uh, brief background of me. So I'm not anti-vax and I've never been vaccine hesitant. However, specifically regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine for people young, so I'm 27, um, there seems to be some contradicting recommendations between state and federal governments, which has seeded a bit of distrust. So what is, I guess, your recommendation regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine for young people like me? Hi, Nathan. My recommendation, the short TLDR uh, answer is talk to your GP. But like, let's talk about it a bit because it's a really, it's a really good point that you raise. Like, you know, people feel like they've got to say, I'm not anti-vax, but I've got, you know, I'm not sure because as you say, it has been a bit confused in the messaging. It has to do with um, the relative risk of catching COVID versus, you know, dying from um, the vaccine itself, which is super, super low. But with younger people, up until now, the risk of catching COVID versus your risk of, um, you know, getting a, a bad reaction from the blood clot that, you know, is rare but can happen with AstraZeneca was, you know, the, there was perhaps it was hard to sort of figure out which one of those was more risky. But in different uh, levels of infection in the community, all of a sudden that risk feels really, really real and apparent, which is why the advice is still to talk to your GP Um and get your advice from someone who knows you and knows your situation and that you trust. So um, basically there's uh, advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation that for people under 60, it's preferred that they can get Pfizer. But there's also a really <laughs> cool document that if you search weighing up the potential benefits against risk of harm from COVID-19 vaccines, uh, you can find the basically the they've shown they're working. So it shows your risk of getting a blood clot from AstraZeneca, very, very low, versus your potential benefits of preventing death or disease from uh, COVID itself. One of the things it doesn't take into account is your risk of long COVID or your maybe desire to protect the people around you. Like there's more that goes into this than just facts and figures. But um, so yeah, to basically come back to my first point, yes, understood, the messaging is confusing. Talk to a trusted GP. Um, and ag agreeing with uh, Tegan, uh, let's consider two very extreme situations. Um, you're in Broken Hill or Utnadatta and there's no virus in a human within 500 kilometres of you and in a couple of weeks they're going to roll through with the um, Pfizer vaccine for everybody. At the other extreme, you're in the middle of a hot spot. Now, here's some hard numbers for you. Look at a million people. Everybody's going to get infected sooner or later with the coronavirus. Look at a million people. If you go to the John Hopkins website, out of those million people, 22,000 will die from coronavirus according to the worldwide average, which is not the same for Australia, and the figures are a bit wobbly, but we're sort of in the right ballpark. 22,000. If you drive on the roads in Australia, out of every million, 40 will die in a year. If you take the AstraZeneca, one. There's your numbers, 22,000, 40 and 1. Are you prepared to drive on the roads? Sure. Well, I wouldn't worry about taking the AstraZeneca.
We've got Brayden here from Warrnambool. Brayden, we're looking at the yeah, trainers. What's your question? Yeah. Uh, so, hey, Aaron. Uh, I want to know uh, how the life rings in trees indicate its age and, like, how do they occur? Oh, th- that's a really deep question. And it's given us so much enlightenment in the sense that we have found trees that are, by counting the rings, 5,000 years old. Wow, that's before the invention of written language as far as we can tell. And so what happens with the trees is that on average, but it's not always the case, but on average, a whole bunch of trees tend to grow more in the summer and then they put out, they grow and they get bigger in diameter on the outside. They grow and then come the winter, they shut down. Some of them shut down a lot, some of them shut down a little. If you go to the ones that shut down a lot and they drop their leaves, mate, they're just doing nothing. They're just in hibernation. So then when you chop the tree with a chainsaw or an axe and you start counting, you, you, you look, you see these concentric rings and there's a ring where it grew really lot and then there's nothing. And then there's another ring and then a different coloured gap. And so you've got these rings, each of which corresponds to a growing season, which on average is each year. We've got Luzzy here from Orange. Luzzy, what's going on? You've moved house recently. Yeah, I have. Um, just a bit curious about the static electricity. Um, we moved out of a brand new house and we had none in there and now we're back into an older house and every time my partner and I like even just touch each other, we get zapped or touch random objects around the house. Why is that? Mm, Carl. Um, it's real, but we don't fully understand it. I used to think that people with the so-called oilier skin were less likely to have it and people with drier skin, like think of somebody from Scotland or with, with red hair and really dry, dry skin would not have it and, and that doesn't hold. You know, I was no, just totally I'm wrong. No, as a lizard at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's, there's something about the house, which is a really dumb thing to say but obvious, where the static electricity bleeds off and it could be, for example, how much conductive material there is in the wood or in the concrete. Um, I do know that rubber can can carry electricity when they go to the trouble of been putting carbon into the rubber of the shoes of people who work in oil refineries. So um, there are different degrees of bleeding off the electricity, but honestly, I've got nothing apart from wrapping a copper wire around your waist and trailing a 10-metre <laughs> ground antenna behind you. I got nothing. Uh, interesting, oh, well, We've been talking about it for weeks that we're going to phone up and find out the answer, but I guess it's just going to go unsolved. Well, look, you can buy those special rubber shoes or if you go to the catalogues of the electronic supply people, they sell a little thing to drain off your static electricity and you put it onto the heel of your shoe and then tie it around your ankle with a little elastic strap and then it's got a little bit of conductive material that you wrap around your ankle and so you've got direct contact from the flesh of your ankle to the bottom of your shoe and I think, it's I think I'll just clunky. take the spontaneous yeah I was, I was gonna say you want to wear that all the time <laughs> no <laughs> oh good luck we've got Paul here from Melbourne Dr Paul what's your question oh good morning um my question is that is it theoretically possible that mosquitoes could pass on coronavirus to other people, from infected people to others? It's such a good question because we know that there are some diseases that mosquitoes can transmit. There's a couple of things here. One is like where the coronavirus 
is in your body, like when you've got it, and the other is like where you need it to go to get infected. And so they're both the lungs, right, or the respiratory system. So when your body is making coronavirus, like, yes, you can find it in your bloodstream. It does, you know, coronavirus, the virus particles do go into your blood, but they're mostly in your lungs and your nose and throat. And similarly, they've got to get into that part of your body generally to infect you. Um, So that's like a no and a no. But then in addition to that, some like there are some bloodborne viruses that don't transmit via mosquitoes either, like HIV. So usually when mosquitoes are a vector, like as in they are involved in transmitting a pathogen from one person to another, the mosquitoes themselves actually get infected. And if you want to blow your own mind, look up the life cycle of malaria, like what malaria has to do inside a mosquito to like transmit from one person to another. It's actually bonkers. So short answer, no. Long answer, look up malaria, it'll blow your mind. All right. Thanks, Paul. Hopefully there'll be no mozzies to worry about. (laughs) we got Grant here from Ngunnawal Country. Grant, what's your question? Hey, doctors. How's it going? Good. Um, So my question is, I'm an identical twin, and so sharing nearly 99% of my DNA with my brother, if we hypothetically had partners who they themselves were identical twins and both couples had a child, let's say a boy, would these two boy cousins look like twins themselves and how much DNA would they share? And also, if there was a paternity test taken, would the uncles and aunts possibly be mistaken as the biological parents? Oh, Grant, so many layers. Dr. Carl. Okay, so firstly, with regard to the biological tests, they do not test every single one of the three billion rungs of the ladder of life that is your DNA. They might test a couple of dozen or a hundred or a thousand, leaving behind three billion that they haven't tested. So the tests themselves are not as good as they should be. And in fact, it was only this calendar year where we reckon we've finally got the complete DNA of humans mapped. We claim we did it in the year 2000, claim we did it in the year 2006, finally got it done this year and you still can't do it. So that's the first thing with regard to the testing. The testing is inadequate. Secondly, on average... When a man and woman love each other very much in a special way, 50% of the DNA in the baby comes from the male and 50% from the female on average. But it varies 80-20 and it can do so irrationally. So in some cases, you walk down the street and you see this family going out for a Sunday walk in their Sunday best and they all look like him or her. And then you walk past the next family and some look like him, some look like her and some look like something in between. So with regard to the sperm that you're generating that then go into the egg, that meet up with the egg, you've got anything between 80% from one parent down to 20%. So that the, the children can be 50-50 if you're very, very lucky if you want to do that sort of thing or they can vary enormously. So the odds are against them being very identical. But sometimes you do get that mix. We still don't fully understand that one either. Right. That's wild. Thanks, Grant. Kids don't know. We're, we're all thinking about it now. We got Ali here from Sydney. Ali, what's your question for Tegan? Hi, doctors. Um, so I have a friend who doesn't want to get vaccinated. And I want to know that um, when we reach high enough vaccination levels and we start to lift restrictions and open up again, what is the risk um, to me when, like, hanging out with her? Like, is the risk just hers because she's the one unvaccinated or is there still a risk to me? There's, I think there's a risk that goes both ways, but it's not equal. So you're protected 
from being vaccinated from catching this virus or if you get it, it's you're going to get a, a lower level of disease than you would have otherwise got. She's the one that's at highest risk uh, because she's completely unvaccinated. Her body doesn't know how to fight this thing off if she catches it. Uh, but there is, it's, it's something that people in the States especially are talking a lot about at the moment because a lot of people in the States are vaccinated. They've got high levels of the virus circulating in the community and there are people who are getting what's what's called breakthrough infections where people are vaccinated but they still get infected and again it's not so much about like the risk to you might be low but then your risk is that perhaps you catch it and then you pass it on to another person who can't be vaccinated or whose immune system is weaker for whatever reason so even if they are vaccinated they're not as well covered as you are so there's not just your risk and your mate's risk there's her risk and then there's also the risk of you potentially passing it on to someone else so that's why having as many people vaccinated as possible is important it also factors into how much virus is running in the community at the moment so like if we're really well vaccinated but there's no COVID in Australia then we're all good but yeah this really comes into play when we're going to have the virus in the community which is going to happen eventually Sean what do you want to ask Tegan and Carl oh good day Tegan and Carl yeah um, I'm in the uh remediation of COVID here in South Australia. And um, just wondering, um, have you guys started implementing negative air and chlorine dioxide technologies um, with your quarantine? Uh, there's not, I don't know about the negative air thing in each each jurisdiction is different, but it's definitely still a problem. We're still seeing leaks from hotel quarantine. Uh, we know that, I don't believe there's been any leaks from the, the quarantine station on um, in the Northern Territory, which is sort of an outdoor setting, but we are seeing these situations where someone can open a door in a corridor and someone else opens the door, like maintaining negative pressure in buildings that are already built is really difficult. And we're also seeing similar situations in apartment buildings in Sydney and Melbourne where people are catching COVID because of this the, the lack of negative air pressure, whereas um, in COVID wards, specialist wards, that's sort of built into the system. There's been a large group of scientists from all over the world speaking very loudly for more than a year now about the need to factor this into as part of infection control. We keep hearing about deep cleaning. We keep telling people to wash their hands. And yet we don't really seem to be taking the necessary steps to prevent aerosol transmission, even though we know that that's actually probably the main way that coronavirus transmits. Exactly. I heard somebody very clever on Coronacast say the best time to build proper quarantine open air, air gapped facilities was at the beginning and the second best time is tomorrow. Thanks, Sean. We've got Albert here from Parramatta. Dr. Albert, uh, your wife's pregnant. Hey. Talk to us. What's happening? Oh, uh, yeah. So, oh, uh, yeah. No, we just had our uh, second kid. Just had my second kid. So okay. I was having an argument with my wife's sisters. I was having an argument with my wife's sisters. And I was saying that because um, my missus is pregnant, okay, they're Irish. They're Irish as you get. They're like full 100% white Irish, like Mr. Potato Head's their second cousin Irish. <laughs> and I'm Lebo. I'm like 100% Lebanese. And I told her, I go, if you go get one of those ancestry DNA tests, do you know that it comes up with your nationality on it? Yeah, yeah I told her, if, you're, if you get one of those, you'll have Lebanese DNA in you now because you have my baby who's like full Lebanese and you're half Irish. I go, so if you get one of those tests, you'll come like, she'll come up with Lebanese DNA now. So your wife would come up with Lebanese DNA? Yes, even though she's full Irish, she's got a baby that's Lebanese inside her, you know what I'm saying? Dr. Carl, thoughts? Um... <laughs> Over okay, the average human has thirty-seven trillion cells uh, that came from their parents, 
And in there, there might be maybe a couple of hundred or maybe a thousand or maybe a million cells from the baby. And some of those would then carry part Lebanese, part non-Lebanese DNA. And the question is, would you be able to find one of those very rare cells? I mentioned earlier that they can appear, for example, in the thyroid gland and set off autoimmune disease. It'd be the luck of the draw whether you could find one when you did the sampling. Just a piece of health advice for you as well, Albert. Uh, don't recommend arguing with sisters-in-law just as a general rule. Yeah. It can lead to injury. <laughs> yeah, that's it, 100%. 100%. No, that's it. So, so the sister's not half Lebanese now. That's what I've been telling them. <laughs> not, I don't think so. Albert, I love your energy. I <laughs> see. The, the father-in-law will be happy then. Awesome. <laughs> we got Liz here from Canberra. Liz, uh, you got a question about vaccines. Um, I do. I was wondering that uh, is this going to be sort of like a rolling thing where we get like a flu shot only it's for a COVID because, you know, we've got three shots happening in countries now. So I'm just wondering how many vaccines we're going to need in the end. Yeah, great question. And the answer is yes, probably. So at the moment, you need two two shots of the vaccine to sort of get your immune system going. But we know that the virus is mutating and evolving because that's what all these variants are all about. At the moment, we're dealing with the Delta variant. It won't be the last one as we continue to put pressure on the virus, which we should continue to do because otherwise we're going to suffer from it. Uh, it's going to continue to evolve and it'll just continue to evolve just because that's what viruses do when they replicate. They're not very good at proofreading themselves and so they make mistakes and those mistakes get carried through. And if enough of those mistakes happen, then it looks different to your body, which is why we need um, booster shots for things like the flu every year. Like you say, the flu is really mutatey. Coronaviruses are less mutatey, but because it's giving so many options, uh, opportunities to mutate, it's doing it. And so, yeah, it might not be annual. We don't know yet, but um, vaccine companies are working hard already at developing variant-specific uh, vaccines, and um, I think we've already got some on order for next year, if I'm not mistaken, here in Australia. So, yeah, watch this space for sure. And we've got Ella from Toowoomba. Dr Ella, you're closing us out. What's your question? I was just wondering how fingernails stick to our fingers. Dr Carl. Well, they come from the flesh. Uh, they're made from keratin. Uh, there's keratin in two places in your body, your fingernails and in your hair. And they have pretty well exactly the same number of atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, but they're arranged in different ways. So fingernails are less flexible than hair. And so you've got the nail bed forming out of the blood. It just grabs. There's some cells there and they grab the atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen and whatever. And they start arranging them, following the instructions in the DNA and they're sort of intrinsically melded into the nail bed. So look up the Wikipedia entry on the nail bed and then they migrate forward at the rate of maybe five to ten centimetres per year and they become more and more separated from what's underneath. They become more physically different until by the time you get to the very end, they're not only physically different, they're physically separated. But the biochemical process at the beginning means that they are the same as the stuff underneath and they just gradually migrate along. It's weird to think that on one hand, you look just like the boring old you sitting there wearing your jumper and your twin set or your jeans or your trackie. Okay, trackie, I'm wearing a trackie, all right? So you're wearing your trackie, but underneath, there's all this stuff going on. 50,000 litres of water going across your membranes and fingernails being made out of chemicals. Thanks, Ella. Thank you.
Oh, Tegan Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. You're from ABC's Coronacast, and if you've got any more questions for Tegan, you can submit them. How do we do that, Tegan? You go to the website, abc.net.au slash coronacast. We love answering your questions, so definitely send them in. Dr. Carl, we'll catch you next week. Peachy Keen, thank you so much, Dr. Tegan. And I'll be listening to you tomorrow morning as I do every morning in the gym. Thank you, Tegan. (laughs) No, Dr. K. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. Make sure you give us a like and subscribe so you're the first to know when a new episode drops. And hey, maybe you want to share this episode with someone you think might need it. I'm Lucy Smith. I'll catch you next week.